And today, I want to tell you, I want to talk to you, I want you to know that you don't need to buy God's affection. You don't need to buy God's favour. You don't need to buy God's goodness, okay? But the little secret is you don't need to buy it because he'll give it to you for free anyway. You've already got it. Um, I'm just going to start by praying. So, Father God, we love you. We think you're cool. We think you're great. Uh, <laughs> we're just, I'm going to do this preaching and we're all going to listen and uh, we just pray that it really goes well and uh, we just want to be with you and thank you for being you and um, yeah, we're just going to have some fun. Amen. Right, um, so the passage I'm going to start off uh, is in Samuel, 1 Samuel 13. Uh, I'm just going to read that in a little bit. First of all, I just want to explain the context of that passage. Um, so in the summer, we did a little series on Ruth, on the book of Ruth and the person of Ruth. And the book of Ruth was set in the time of Judges in the Bible. Um, and so Judges is when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt and they'd gone into the, they'd gone through the desert and they've gone into the land that they were going to live in. And they were led by Moses and then by Joshua and all their leaders had gone. So Joshua died and they didn't have like a national leader anymore. Um, so they were led by some people who kind of popped up now and again who were called the judges. And that's what the book of Ruth was all about. And there's a guy called Samuel who was the last of the judges. And he's the last judge because at the end of him being a judge, he anoints this guy called Saul to be the first king of Israel. And that's where this little passage starts off. So Saul has just been made king. Um, it turns out he wasn't a very good one. Uh, he starts off doing quite well. He starts off, he's, he's a good warrior. He does some battles. He takes back some land. But in the end, he loses his kingship and Saul takes it from him and gives it to David. So that's where we're going to read. So if I'm just going to read out a little bit of 1 Samuel chapter 13. And this is going to be like, I'm not really going to kind of preach on the passage. This is going to be, I'm not going to kind of take the passage apart. That's more like a, uh, a jumping off point for what I want to say today. So I'm going to do some teaching from the kind of a theme I want to take from it. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how that has affected my life. So I'm going to give you some of, uh, some stories about me and some things that, that has happened to me because of the understanding I've had from this. And then uh, that's what I'm going to do. So if you look at the start, it says that Saul 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. So Saul became king. And then if we jump down to verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Mishmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan. So Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So he waited for seven days, which was the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the Saul's Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. So that's the the critical thing there. He should have waited, but he didn't. And And Samuel said to him, what have you done? And he said, when I saw the people scattering, you didn't come. Uh, and I was afraid, so I said, 
Now the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you have done a foolish thing, because you have not kept the commands that God gave you. Um, so that's the passage. And the key thing in that passage is that Saul was told to wait, but he didn't. So he got afraid because he was going to be attacked. And he felt compelled to seek God's favour. And he did it by doing something that he shouldn't have done. He gave an offering to God that he wasn't supposed to do. And um, this is kind of like the beginning, the end, the beginning of the end in one sense for Saul as king. Because it shows that his heart really wasn't in the right place. He hadn't got something about God that was required for him to remain the king. And Saul, in all the talks I've heard about Saul, he gets a bit of a... He gets a bit of a, what's the word? He gets a bit of a negative, maybe a negative preach about him. He gets a bit of a hard, um, a hard, hard preach because he basically messes up quite a bit. But I think we can be a bit sympathetic to Saul because what he did, I reckon, was quite understandable. It was quite normal. It was quite human, actually. Um, and what it was is he thought he had to buy God's approval. He thought that there was something he had to do to get God to act on his behalf. He thought there was a transaction. I'm afraid I'm going to get attacked. We're going to lose. Their arm is bigger than mine. I'd better do this thing so God will like me, so God will be in my side, and then we'll win. And that's what he's told off for. But it's quite a normal, understandable thing to do. I think we can be a bit sympathetic to him. And I think it's an easy mistake to make because... We can often interact with God this way. And I think the reason why we interact with God this way is because this is how we interact with other people. This is how we interact with all people. We're all interdependent as a society. We're interdependent. If we want to think, if we want to get things done, then we realize we have to do things for other people. If we want people to do things for us, then we have to do something for them in return or beforehand. Like just simply, if you want to buy some food, if you want to get some food of someone, you have to give them some money. If you want to get the money in the first place, you have to go out to work and you have to do some productive and you have to work it. And we become indebted to one another. We do things for each other and that's how society works. We've got this amazing complex society that we have because we all work together and we do things for each other and we rely on each other really well. So the kind of technology that we have, I was watching this talk a while ago about a computer mouse and this guy was saying no one in the world knows how to make one of these. And he broke down all the different steps that are required from drilling in the ground and getting the oil out to the people who can run a company really well, to the people who can design it, the people who run the programs. No one, just that one little piece we use all the time, no one knows how to do it. That's how reliant we are on one another. And um, my mum is convinced we're all going to go back to being in, with horses and carses because she thinks horses and carts. And that's always been a source of humour for us growing up. But she keeps going, that is going to happen. Because she can see, actually, that we all rely on each other and that if something breaks, then we're all going to go backwards technologically. Um, and that's, that's just that's what she thinks is going to happen. We'll wait and see. Um, so that's like kind of physically. But socially, it's the same way. Like We need to do things with the people. I... Like in, in order to be like a friend with someone, you have to put something positive in their life. Do you know what I mean? I'm not like trying to make it harsh, but like when people like you or be friends with you, it's because you've done something for them. Maybe you've made them laugh. Maybe you've made them feel good about themselves. Yeah? It's just kind of basic human interaction. That's how it works. Um, if you want to get on with your families and your work colleagues, you need to be a person that people want to be around. Like, am I not being too harsh? Does that make sense? Like what I'm saying? Yeah? You need to do things for people. So like in any kind of long-term relationship of any kind of friendship or family 
sexual relationship or like a marriage relationship, like you need to keep investing in them. You need to keep on investing. You need to keep putting in so that they can give back to you. We recognize that's how life works. And um, we even teach our children this. So my children, we teach them, we teach them to, like, why do we make them say please and thank you? There's a variety of reasons, but one of them is that if you want me to get you food, you have to be nice to me. It's like a life lesson, yeah? Obviously, I'm not going to let them starve to death, but we want to teach them that stop taking things for granted, just say please and thank you, and it will make me feel better, and then I'll be more likely to do it. And because we're teaching them that this is the way the world is. When you go out into the world, you need to be nice to people, so they'll be nice to you too. Um, Does that make sense, yeah? So, um... And if you're still not convinced, think about what would happen if you didn't do anything for anyone. Think how long you'd be able to last then, yeah? You wouldn't be part of society. And um, and with, that's so ingrained in us, because we're social animals as human beings, we're social animals. And the thing is that we take that same attitude that we don't even think about consciously, and we apply it to God. We have the same attitude, and we unknowingly treat God the same way. Um, because we're so used to being interdependent on people, we're so used to relying on other people. Um, we're so used to like paying for what we get that we automatically treat God the same. But did you know that God's different? God's not like us. God is completely different to us. In fact, God doesn't need anything. Yeah? But we so quickly fall into this way of thinking. Saul fell into that way of thinking. He's like, oh, I've got to, he literally says, I've got to get the Lord's favour. I've got to do this thing for him. But God didn't need him to do anything for him. And this seems to be the, you know, like the basis of religion, like what you can do for God. And we fall into this trap too. We fall into this trap quite a lot. And, um, you know, we come to church, we say our prayers, we read the Bible. Like, have you ever done that? And at like, your back of your mind, like, like you've been to church, you said your prayers, you've read your Bible, you think, yeah, I'm on top of it now. I'm doing well. Yeah. Or when you don't, you think you're doing really badly. Um, I feel like you're feeling guilty because you think, oh no, I haven't done those things that I should be doing. And um, I want to tell you a little story here. So when Reuben was a little baby, so we had a, it was our first newborn baby, and we were still learning how to how to deal with it. And we were trying to get him to go to sleep, and we were so anxious with that. I remember one time. So you know the whole like you're holding them, rocking them, and then like you're laying them down, and then you like step away slowly, and um, you know, so they didn't wake up. And I remember lying in bed, and I could hear him not being asleep. I could hear him making little sniffles. And I was so tired and so desperate. I was pleading with God. And I said to God, I remember this, I promised I'd be a really good Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Those were literally, I was like, like, what can I say that will convince him? Like, I'll be a really good Christian. And then I kind of stopped myself. I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, but seriously, God, I will. Um, Make him go to sleep. <laughs> that was how desperate I got. But we can do that, like obviously there, but we do it without thinking as well. And I don't want to like um want to talk about like doing things for God. I don't want to like trivialise doing the wrong things or like sin, selfishness, like um because that's a serious issue. And um when we talk about being close to God, I know lots of people don't experience that because you know there's a gap that's come between us and God and that's been caused by sin, but God has sent Jesus to make a way back to him. And so we get to go back to God for free, which is brilliant. Jesus dealt with all that stuff on the cross. So I don't want to trivialise anything, what I'm saying. And also, I don't want to mean it like God isn't pleased with us when we do the right thing. He does. He's really pleased with us, and he loves us, and he loves it when we choose to obey him. In fact, it says in the Bible that the greatest command is to love God. And it also says in the Bible that to love God is to obey his commands. 
And also says that love is not a matter of thoughts and words, but action. But the difference is that when we obey God, he's pleased with us. And um, it doesn't have any hold over him. It's not like we've done this and now he's compelled to act. So he doesn't become in our debt because it's, a, it's an act of love, not a transaction. And um, so when, when we buy something like from a shop, like I've said, like we give them the money and then they give us the stuff. So it's a transaction. But when we deal with God, it's not like that. And also like when we give them the money, like they're indebted to us. They're required to do something. They can't just keep the money and be like, ah, oh, that's mine now. Um, and it's not like that with God either. When we do something, he's not then indebted to us. Does that make sense? Yeah. God doesn't think, oh no, they've done that really good thing. I'd better be really nice to them, do something good. And there's two reasons why we don't need to buy God's affection. Okay, and the first I've already mentioned is that God doesn't need anything from us. And the second is that He loves us anyway unconditionally, so we don't need to do anything in that sense. So <clears throat> I've got a couple of photos to, to show you. The first one is a picture of some galaxies. Now, God is really powerful. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how he doesn't need us, yeah? God is really, 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 really powerful. He made everything, okay? He made everything. Now, that might seem like the first three words, the, what was it? In the beginning, God created the first five words of the Bible. It's like a little thing. But actually, everything is really big. There's a lot of everything, yeah? There's a lot of created, okay? On that, that picture there... Um, is a picture of some galaxies. And when people first saw other galaxies like that, they thought they were dust clouds within our own galaxy, okay? People could not bring themselves to understand, to to comprehend that there could be, that actually, instead of just being dust clouds in our galaxy, galaxies, there were actually other galaxies that were really, 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 really far away. And I was reading up about this. It's called The Great Debate in 1920, where people had some, a scientific debate about it. And people's, one of the arguments was just like, that's ridiculous that the universe would be so big. Um, there are billions of galaxies, and they're really far away. The universe is really big, and God made it all. So he's really powerful, and it's funny to think that we could do something for him. And um, it says that in the Bible, it's not just me making it up, it's in Psalm 50. I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 50. Um, it is really big, by the way, if you want to go and read about it. Your verse is really, really big. Um so, Psalm 50, I want to read like from 9. I'm going to feed a few verses there. <coughs> so he says, I don't have any need of a bull from your stool or goats from your pens. So he's talking about sacrifices. He says, every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills, they're his. And he says, I know the birds and the mountains and the insects of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you because the world is mine and all that is in it. And then later in verse 21, he says, you thought I was exactly like you. You thought I was like you, but I'm not. And um, we fall into that trap of thinking that God is like us. Yeah? So we think that we should treat him the same way we treat other people. It says that the cattle on a thousand hills are his. Now that's a bit of a weird analogy, like just, okay, God, fine. You can have all the cows. Um but like they lived in an agricultural society, and so like the wealth was in livestock. I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent, like all the oil fields are mine, or like all the transatlantic trade agreements. Have you read about that recently? Like a uh, Apple and Google and Microsoft and that guy in India who's the richest guy in the world. Like they're all mine. Yeah, 
That's what he's saying. I've got all the money in the world. I don't need anything from you. Actually, I own everything. Um, And then he says, like, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. Like, not even that, that you could make me not hungry, but I wouldn't even tell you about it. God has no need of us to do anything for him. And, um, that should come as a relief. But often, but, you know, if we're thinking that we can do something for God, there must be a kind of something in us thinking, well, like, God, like, we could do something for God. And he'd be like, oh yeah, you've done that for me. Um, how could we possibly do something for God that he would have to pay us back? Even if we could understand his needs, how could we meet them? How could we even meet the needs of God? Right, the next pitch I'm going to put up, I've got to warn you, don't do it yet. Uh, if you're a little bit squeamish, don't look. Um, now I've kind of freaked you out, thinking, what is he going to put up? It's not actually not that bad. Uh, it's a picture of a baby just after it's been born, okay? Right, you can't see it there. Now this is an amazing picture, because this baby is actually still inside the amniotic sac, okay? So this baby's actually been born by caesarean, but even then, it's really quite rare for that to happen, okay? So this baby, and I was just looking at this picture, and it's just amazing that there's a baby that's just been born. I know you can't see it that well in there, but it's, it's still in, like, the amniotic sac. Like, that was us. Like, every single person used to look like that. Like, we've all been there. Like, every one of us was that. And if you don't know, okay... Uh, so inside the baby's inside the womb, inside the urethra, not urethra, that's a different thing, uterus. <laughs> Let's have a biology lesson. Um, but inside the, the uterus, inside the womb, it's in, it's in the amniotic, uh, amniotic sac, and that's where the amniotic fluid is, and when you give birth, you talk about your water's breaking, and that's because that breaks and all the fluid comes out. Uh, so usually it breaks, but in this case it hasn't, yeah? But we've all been there, we've all used to be like that, and as adults... Would you expect that baby to do anything for you? Yeah? Would you expect that baby to do anything for you? That baby has no ability to meet any of your needs. In fact, it couldn't even understand them. Even if it could understand them, it would be powerless to meet any of your needs. But how would we react? We would instinctively want to care for that baby. We would instinctively want to protect and feed and look after that baby. And that is how God feels about us. In fact, God routinely, throughout the Bible, uses the parent analogy when describing how he thinks about us. Jesus calls God Father. We talked about the fact that we're his children. In fact, the reason that we feel about our children that way, the reason that we feel about babies that way, is that we're like God and not the other way around. Yeah? It's not like, oh, by the way, here's this analogy. I'm a bit like a parent. It's actually the other way around because we're made in his, in his image. And you know how parents say things like, oh, you'll always be my little baby. Imagine how God feels about us. Yeah? Because we never stop caring about our children. And in our eyes, they're always the little children. I mean, mine kind of still are little children. Uh, but it's scary how quickly they grow up. I know Evan says that, but it's true. Um, like, and if we feel about that about our children, how much more does God feel about us? That baby, we wouldn't expect to do anything for us. It couldn't. How much bigger is the gap between us and the creator of the universe who made us and loved us? And yet we think, I better go to church so that like, I'll be in his good books. You know, we've, we've had this saying in church. It's a really cool saying. I've heard people say it a few times that what God orders, what God orders, he pays for. 
Remember a few women saying that? Was it Angela Kem? I don't know. What God orders, he pays for. And mainly we've been using it as like an encouragement, mainly near of like finances or going to do something you feel God's called us to do. Well, did you know God ordered you? He made you. And so he's going to pay for you. He's going to meet all your needs. Yeah? So we have like, oh yeah, God's going to do this thing for me. I'm encouraged because God is going to pay for what he ordered. Well, he made you. He designed you. He created you. The perfect God thought you were a good idea. Yeah? The fact that the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-clever God thought you were a really good idea and he's going to pay for you. He's going to meet all your needs. Yeah, And your greatest need to be put right with him, he's met it, Jesus met it on the cross. Every The greatest need we have to deal with sin and death and judgment has been made right. And if he did that, if he went to the cross and died for us, how much more is he going to give us everything else? It says in Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter says that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Yeah, God will meet all our needs. We don't need to convince God to do us good. We don't need to win him to our side because it is in God's nature to do good things for us. God is love. See, in Saul, he didn't have to, going back to the passage, he didn't actually have to buy God's favour in the way that he thought he did. He was actually, if we want a little bit of theology here, he was actually living under a promise. So the promise given to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to all nations, that all of these, that, that God would bless all his friends and would curse all his enemies. So he was actually living under a promise already. He didn't need to do this whole sacrifice thing. And then we don't need to convince God to do us good. But I had a little conjure. I was thinking about this. I was like, well, if I don't need to convince God to do me good, like, why do I need to pray about stuff? And I'm not going to talk about that now. Uh, like, if God already knows our needs, why do we need to pray? I don't really want to talk about that, but I do want to talk a little bit about it. <clears throat> and because when we pray, there's like different ways we pray. So we pray in petition, like we ask God for things. So we pray in petition. Uh, we say, can I have this please? I need this. This is a need I have. Um, we praise him. We pray in prayer, in praise, telling him how amazing he is. There's, there's awe, awestruck prayer when we're just in awe of God's intimacy. So we're commanded, in fact, we're commanded in the Bible to petition God. We're commanded to praise him. We're commanded to be in awe. We're commanded to be intimate, but we're never commanded to beg him. Because he knows all our needs and wants to do us good. I'm going to say it again. We're commanded to petition, to praise, to be in awe, to be intimate, but never to beg. Because he knows us and he wants to do us good. And God will do us good. So when we come to him, our attitude is not one of fear, We don't pray to convince God to do us good, but we pray because we are convinced that he will do us good. Yeah, I'm going to say that one again as well. We don't pray to convince God to do us good, like Saul did. I need to get his faith on my side. We don't need to pray to convince God to do us good, but we pray because we are convinced that God wants to do us good. Is that good? Does that make you feel good? Does that make you feel happy? It makes me feel happy. And this has completely changed the way that I relate to God. And the way I relate to myself, relate to myself, the way I think about myself, and the way I relate to others. And I'm going to give you some examples how experiencing God in this way has, has changed the way I live my life. Um, the fact that I don't need to win God's favour, the fact that I, He already loves me like a child. Um, <coughs> so, we tell our children, so as a consequence of this, so one of the things we do is we tell our children a lot 
that we love them. We tell them all the time that we love them. We tell them every day that we love them. And it's funny, when the first time we explain this concept to the, our children, I remember doing it with Reuben and Rebecca, of explaining that I love you when you're good and I love you when you're naughty. So we've just told them off and they're upset and it's like, hey, I want to tell you something. I love you when you're good and I love you when you're naughty. And both their reactions was like, no, no, you don't. That doesn't make any sense. Like, in fact, Becky, if you know Becky, she went, what? Like, she doesn't, she just didn't get it. She's like, that doesn't make sense. No, you don't. It's like, yeah, I do. I love you when you're good and I love when you're naughty. I love you all the time. And they can quote that now. Um, but they didn't get it because it's so, it's like, and we're the same. It's like, God loves us when we're good. He loves us when we're naughty. He loves us all the time. And, um, Maybe your reaction is like, what? Like, no, you don't. It's like, yes, I do. I love you when you're naughty. I love when you're good. I love you all the time. And um, and they believe it and they quote it. And sometimes I go to him, Reuben, hey, did you know I love you? And we're like, yes. Or like, yeah, like, because he's convinced. He knows it. Um, I used to find it really difficult to accept um, that God wanted to do things for me. And it's just, it's just a funny little story. When I was little... Little, little. So my mum would like teach me how to pray, and I used to pray, and I'd pray by myself. And I was talking, you know, when you finish your prayer, like you say Amen. And I used to have this thing. It's really funny. When I'd say my prayer, like I please God, like look after this person, and I'd say Amen. And then I'd remember something else that I wanted to pray, and I'd be like, Oh no, I've already said Amen. Like I'll, I'll after I'm like interrupting God. Like he's got, okay, John said his prayer, all right, I'll go and listen to him. I'm like, oh God, I just forgot, I was just something else. I say it, I'm, I'm really sorry, and I'll say amen. I was like, oh, I just forgot, there's something else I wanted to say. And then I'd be like, I'm really sorry. And then I'd say, I'd say it again, and I felt really awkward. You know, it's like when you mishear someone, and you say, sorry, can you say that again? And then they say, oh, so I still didn't catch it, and then this, and you just mishear it, and you're like, oh, this is so awkward, I cannot ask them a third time. <laughs> And it used to be like like that when I'm praying. Like I said, Amen three times. I cannot pray anymore. That is it. Like that is it. And um, we have that sense that like we're bothering him. And um, and I, I'm going to give you lots of different stories now. Um, so I remember when I was in like in my early twenties, I I, was, I can picture exactly where this happened. I was walking along. I was praying to God, and I was very sincere. And I said to God that I wanted Him to teach me to hate sin. I want him to teach me to hate my sin because I wanted to do the right thing. It came from a very sincere place. And I remember exactly where I was. It was so powerful. God said to me, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to teach you to know how much I love you. And then after that, you can learn it if you want. And that's really stayed with me. And actually, I can look back on my life and I can see that that was true. God hasn't taught me how to hate sin. But he has taught me how much he loves me. And... um. <sighs> That's just really powerful. He doesn't want to teach you that. He just wants to show you how much he loves you. Going back to um, kind of accepting that God wants to give me good things, like I find that quite difficult, and I've kind of grown in that understanding. And um, so when I got my current job, so when I it was about five years ago, I got this job. I remember I was praying about it, and I was driving in the car, and I was praying about it. And I was like, God, again, being really sincere, like, if it's your will... Like, can I have this job? Like, as in, like, if I'm allowed to, can I please? And then I had a sudden change of heart, and I thought, actually, no, like, I don't, I don't think that is how I need to pray in this situation. Actually, I think 
this is the right job for me. I think this is what I should be doing. I think actually you're in this. So instead of going, please God, if it's your will, can I have this job? It's actually God. I think this is right. I want this job. <laughs> and um, there was a sense of confidence. There was a sense of actually, I don't need to come, uh, what's the word? Timidly to God, asking him, please, if it's your will, could I have this job? But actually, coming in confidence, not that it was a guarantee I was going to get it, but coming in confidence, actually, God wants to give me good things. I know you want to give me good things. I think, by the way, God, I kind of sold it out to him. Look, by the way, these are all the reasons why this is a good thing for you to give me. So please give me this job. Like, like a change of attitude, like a change of attitude, a confidence that actually God is going to do me good. I don't need to worry that I'm bothering him by asking for him. And um, it doesn't mean that he'll give me whatever I want, but it was like a change of attitude, understanding that God will give me good things. And like, um, when we moved house last year, and um, it could be quite a stressful time trying to get a house, but I had a real fun time praying for it. I remember, um, like, we didn't have to like work ourselves up because it's like it's a big thing, like moving house, and um, we didn't have to work ourselves up to kind of pray about it. Like, oh my goodness, like God, we need to get this house. Like, I just trusted God. And it doesn't mean that it was going to happen, but um, I just trusted him that it was going to it was going to work out all right in the end. Um, and there was a house that we prayed about it, and we felt this is the right house. But I went in, and I was like, "This is the house." And so every time we drove past it, kind of sneakily driving past it with the kids, and we like we'd say to God, "Like God, we want that house." Like we just made it fun. Like God, give us that one. That's the one we want. And um, and I, even now I talk about this, I kind of feel a bit awkward about it because I know there's people who really are suffering but the point is there was a change of attitude to believe that God wants to give me good things and it's fine to say to God for me anyway I, I know if you might have not had this problem but it was fine for me to say to God that's a really cool house I want to have that house and um, coming to church so when I come to church like I've come to read to celebrate him and to I'm just relaxed and I'm enjoying it and I used to worry like you know if you haven't I haven't been very good this week uh oh like you come to church and you'd be a bit slow to get into the praising because it's like, oh, I haven't been very good this week. But now, instead, it's like, it's just another thing to praise God about. It's like, yeah, I did something rubbish, but hey, what, you forgive me? Hey! It's like, you go straight in there, actually. I'm going to turn, like it's in the Bible, he turns everything and makes it into something good. So it's like, I've just been like arguing in the car on the way to work, on the way to church. But it's like, God, you forgive me already and you're amazing and you already knew I was going to do that and you love me anyway. Praise you. Do you see what I mean? Like, this is a complete shift to God is good and he really loves me. And um, <laughs> even more so, like when I'm preaching, it's like, oh, I'm going to be preaching this week. Like, I've got to be really good. I've got to not mess this week up. Like, uh-oh, if I do, I'm going to be in trouble. Because like, I'm doing something like really holy, yeah? Like I'm, preach- I'm preaching. I've got to be really good this week. And um, not that you don't, but do you know what I mean? There's this change of attitude. And it's like, um, I remember saying to Claire, like, um, I can't argue with you. Stop arguing with me. I'm preaching this week. And then on Tuesday, it was Sarah's birthday. And you know when there's birthdays, there can be a bit of tension because of the expectations. And then Claire's parents came to visit the day before. And my parents came to visit later that day. So we had all their parents there and in-laws there. And then it was his birthday. And then on Tuesday morning, we were like, it was a bit awkward. And it's like, Claire, I've even written in my preach that I shouldn't be getting annoyed about, because I already were in it, that about, I shouldn't be like worrying about being really good in the week before my preach, and here I am, and we're having an argument, and now I'm worrying about the fact that I'm trying not to worry about the fact I'm trying to be really good. Like, ah! oh my god, like, how do I, like, I'm, do you see what I mean? Ah, you can't win. If you go down that route, you can't win. 
You can't win. You'll never be good enough. And um, as there any impact on our relationship, like when we when we do have a disagreement, like we just we just can't stay angry at each other for as long as we could before. If that makes sense. Like we didn't like because because we're so used to reconciliation. Like it's just so easy. It's like being reconciled with God. God reconciled me like from death into life. From like He. I'm fully reconciled with God. I'm so used with God to just instant reconciliation that I just want to live my life that way. So when Clara and I, when we have a disagreement, it's like we still have to work through all the pain and everything, but it's just like, but it's so easy. It's so easy to come back to recon, to be reconciled because I'm so used to being reconciled so quickly with God. And like just um, a while ago, I think earlier this year actually, uh, we had we had a bit of a disagreement in the morning, and it doesn't happen all the time, by the way. I'm just picking those times. So, uh, and I had to go. I said to Leah, "I have to go now. I have to go to now. I have to go now. That's it. I have to go because I can't be late for work." But we left on a on a really bad, really bad feeling. And by the time I got to work, I took my phone out to put it on silent because it looks bad if I answer my phone in class. I don't ever do that. This is on the recording, by the way. If you're in my employ, I've never done that. Um, that was like an off-the-cuff thing that I shouldn't have said. Anyway, Claire sent me a text while I was driving to work, and then I read it, and it just said, like, I'm sorry we left in a really bad tone. Let's just, you know, like, put it behind us and sort of things out. And it just changed the whole atmosphere. The rest of the day, I could just relax, knowing that I can go home and things are going to be good between us, rather than, like, leaving on that bad note, do you know what I mean? And it just changes the way that you can live your life. Right, I'm getting near the end here. What's the time? Okay, going to hurry up. Um... <coughs> So I want to get one more story, and then I'm just going to do another thing from the Bible here. So Reuben, uh, he was quite anxious, and he used to get out of bed every night scared. And, it, and we tried being really firm with him, and we tried uh, saying, you have to go to bed now, mainly because it's like, it's the evening, and we want to have an evening, but you have to go to bed now. And um, But we were trying to be firm with him and teach him that was the right thing to do. You have to go to bed. Uh, that's best for you. But it just didn't work. And um, so I tried a completely different tact, and I said to him, "I said, Reuben, if you are, if you are ever scared, uh, you can always come downstairs and find us. You can always come and find us." And I said, "Like, not if you're bored. Like, do you know what I mean?" He goes, "Yeah, I know what you mean." Um, but just by saying, "If you're ever scared, you know you can always come and find us, and I will make you feel safe, and I will make you feel better, and we will look after you." Just by saying that, since we said that, he's hard to come out of bed again. He still does a little bit, but just that reassurance. See, he was scared. He felt anxious because he thought there was a standard he had to meet. Like he was nervous. I'm going to get told off. But just the reassurance of being told, you can come to us whenever you need to, was enough to calm him. And Jesus said, if you're ever tired and if you're ever thirsty, you can come to me and you can drink for free. And I just want to look at the story of the prodigal son, and then I'm going to finish. Um, So it's in Luke 15, if you want to go and look at it, Luke 15, verse 11. And I know we've heard lots of times before, so super quick summary. Um, So there was a guy, he had two sons, and the first one said, I want to have my inheritance, and he went off, and he spent it really badly, and he shamed himself. He was in a poor situation. And then he decided to come back. And that's what I want to pick up on. So I just want to look at what he said. Um, 
I need to let, I know what he said. Um, so it, Jesus says that he, when he came to his senses, then he practiced what he was going to say. And I always think that's really funny. Because it's like, people are the same. You know, um, when you've got something important to say and you practice it beforehand, you're like, okay, I'm going to like, you know, like a big moment in your life. You're going you're gonna to practice it. And I, I imagine him, like, maybe think he looked at one of the pigs and pretended the pig was his father, dad. I've got this thing to say to you. So people haven't changed, have they? 2,000 years ago, people could still relate to the idea. I used to, we're short on time, so I'm not going to say this, but I used to hate voicemail. I used to hang up straight away and plan it and then call back again because I can't do that. But he, used to, he planned what he was going to say. And this is what he planned. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He promised to come back and work for him. He said, I will work for you. He literally did the whole thing that I'm talking about, saying, I'm going to work for you. He thought he was going to work his way back to the Father. He said, make me like a hired servant. I will make it up to you. I will work for you. That's how he thought he was going to get right with his Father. Yeah? He said, I will work for you. Make me like a servant. Make me like a hard servant. But when he got there, if you look at the passage, he only says two of the things. He says, the father ran to him and embraced him. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he didn't say, make me like one of your hard servants. See, when he, I don't know what it was that caused that to happen. Maybe just in the father's embrace, that urge to redeem himself went and he realized the father had redeemed him instead yeah and in fact he'd already come to his senses yeah he'd already realized he had to go back to the father he'd already got himself in the right frame of mind but he still had a, i need to earn this mentality yeah and we can have that too that we need to earn it and um when he experienced the father's love though he was reassured and realized that i don't need to earn it and when we look at the older brother now this is really interesting too so the older brother he then gets really angry and he says um he hears of this noise and he goes see what's going on and he says to the father he says um all these years like i've slayed for you i've slayed for you i've never disobeyed you and you never even gave me like a calf that i could what's it say is that a calf that i could um so I could have a party with my friends. And this is the father went and pleaded with him. And this is what he says. He says, you have, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, even though he was in the house already, maybe that's like us. We hadn't run away. We were still here. But he still had that mentality of slaving away. He was slaving away all these years, trying really hard not to disobey Maybe you can relate to that. You're trying really hard not to do the wrong thing. And what does the father say? He says, you've always been with me. Like that's what his, that's what he could have been doing. Instead of trying really hard not to obey, not to disobey, he could have just been with God, could have just been with the father. And then when he says, you didn't even give me a calf, the father's response is, everything I have is yours. He could have taken anything anytime he wanted. Do you get that? Like, I just find that really, he said, he is complaining that he didn't get a calf, but the father says, well, everything I have is yours. Like, you could have just taken it. You could have just, at any time, you could have just done whatever you wanted. Everything I have is yours. There's a sense of generosity. I don't want to be missing out. I don't want to be missing out on God because I'm thinking about rules or whether I've earned it or not. Just like that older son, he was missing out on God. He was missing out on the Father. 
And what do we do with this? I don't know, what do we do with this? Just that God is generous. If you come to him, you can come to him free and without cost, and God's going to throw a party, heaven's going to throw a party. Or are you spending your time focusing on, are you spending your time focusing on knowing God and enjoying him? Or are you slaving away, desperately trying to please a God who doesn't need your work, and he's in love with you anyway? God is completely in love with you anyway. So, I just want to pray for us. Um, have we got time to do that? Okay. <coughs> right, I've got a one, one minute super quick story. I told Ruben recently that I thought he was great. I said, I love you, Ruben. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell the whole story. And this is what he did. As I walked out of the room, he went, yes, daddy loves me. And then as I was walking through the kitchen, he goes, daddy loves me, daddy loves me. Like he was just reveling in my love for him. And I think that we can revel in God's love in the same way. And I want you to do that right now. I want you to take a moment to revel in God's love. So often when uh, we pray for people, we have to stand up and engage with God. Well, I'm going to make a point. I want you to sit down. I don't want you to do anything. Okay? I'm going to get you to say sitting down just to make the point that you need to do nothing. You don't even need to stand up. Okay? I'm going to read a verse that says in... um It says in Romans chapter 5 that God pours his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. God pours his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you a question. What does that feel like? What does that feel like? You know, that is true for all Christians, for all time. doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you go. That is always true for all time. That is never going to stop being true. For all eternity, it is true that God is pouring his heart, pouring his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. I just want you to engage with God right now. You might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. Just engage with God and ask him to pour his love into your heart. He already is, because it's in the Bible and it's true. God is pouring his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. What does that feel like? (laughs) What does it feel like to have love poured into your heart? I want you to encourage to ask God, I want to encourage you to ask God to show you what it feels like to have love poured into your heart. feels pretty good and it's free it's available i know at church like we do the whole quiet thing let's just sit down quietly but it's available for you anytime anywhere any place god will pour his love into your heart but i actually find it really difficult to do this quietly for me it's when i dance and when i jump about the house that's when i feel his love being poured into my heart so we'll just do it quietly now because a lot of us god will you pour your love into these people's hearts right now Pour your love. He is pouring his love into your heart. Open their hearts, God, that they would experience your love. I want you to experience his love. I want you to feel it. I know Rod's been talking about imagining recently. Actually feel it for real. Love being poured into your heart. And then be transformed. Be transformed. It's not just in our imaginations, but actually it changes how we live. You don't need to buy God's affection. It's not for sale. You don't need to impress him. You don't need to win him over to your side. 
He loves you. You're his child. He made you. He knows you. He doesn't require anything from you. He's done everything that you need to win you back to himself. Anything that might come in the way, he killed it on the cross. You're completely free to know God, to know his love, and to experience his love all the time. One day we're going to be there in heaven in glory, and we're going to see him. It's going to be amazing. But for now, we still get to experience his love poured into our hearts. So I want to encourage you to ask God to pour his love into your heart. And I want you to ask God to show you what it feels like so that you can be transformed, so that you can be confident knowing that your great Father in heaven loves you and cares for you. Father, would you do it now?